0: Hello again. This is Josh Carr with The Real Angle, and today I'm speaking with Aaron O'Boyle, founding and managing partner of Harvest Capital Partners. Aaron, how are you doing today?
1: Good, Josh. Thanks for having me. Good. Thanks for
0: joining. Always, always a pleasure to uh, to chit chat a little bit. Uh, so I always like to start with the very basic stuff. Uh, Harvest's website is what's your web address?
1: www.harvestcp.com
0: always like to say that early on because invariably the first thing anyone does on their phone is try to figure out who is this Aaron person and uh, who is Harvest so uh, let's start by talking a little bit about Harvest and uh, what what is Harvest I guess let's let's start from there what is Harvest Capital Partners
1: sure so Harvest Capital Partners is an SEC registered investment advisor and we're also a minority women-owned business and we advise institutions, including public pension funds, corporate pension funds, family offices and the like on the real estate holdings and strategies. And we offer comprehensive services um, to our clients.
0: Okay, so let's there there's a few things there to unpack. Uh, let's start with, I guess, uh, what what is an SEC registered advisor? What what does that actually mean?
1: So uh, an SEC registered advisor means you go through the formal process of being registered with the SEC and complying to all of the rules and regulations. You know, the bottom line is they're just trying to make sure you're being a fiduciary on behalf of the investors you represent. There's, There's not conflict of interest. There's not separate agendas. So it requires uh, a lot of compliance with regulations like Dodd Frank from the last recession, sure. um, pay for play, uh, reporting standards, you have to have a policies and procedure manual. And it sounds like a lot of administration, but at the heart of it, you know, if you're representing an institution that's, let's say, a pension fund that's representing, you know, the school teachers and firefighters from your community. You want to make sure the person advising the pension fund is really a fiduciary. So it takes a lot of work, uh, but it is a, a kind of the gold stamp of approval in some ways. Uh, and many institutions require that as part of your advisory work.
0: Right. And you mentioned pension funds. I mean, often pension funds internally, I mean, it's not that they don't have investment professionals, but at the same time, they're just a pension fund. Like they they need well, they often need external advice. Yeah.
1: And they often have very small staffs. You know, I don't know if that's disseminated by the public. So they have very small staffs to invest, you know, ongoing large uh, pension funds or endowments. So um, they find a way to do so effectively because they don't, you know, they're not set up to be a large investing organization.
0: Right. And they're sitting on piles of money. And often, at least in my experience, I mean, Yeah, I mean, as you said, I mean, they're representing, you know, groups of people who are not necessarily investment professionals like school teachers. So someone needs to look out for them. No, and that makes a lot of sense. I'd imagine also just big picture, the fact that you're SEC registered means that when you speak to other entities who don't necessarily, who may not necessarily be required to use an SEC registered advisor, I'd imagine that also gives some comfort when you talk to other entities just because, you know, they just figure, hey, if the feds, you know, did the paperwork
1: right it is it, it is comfort. a it is a acknowledged credential and what we've done in our practice is prior to forming this we had you know over 25 years of experience as a principal so we bring a real informed knowledge and experience in the business you know in my career tenure um, I started working for a major developer developing office and retail buildings uh it with a major regional developer. Then I ran asset management and portfolio management for an office, industrial, and hotel portfolio. Then I did a slew of workouts. I'm showing my old age through the last cycles. Sure. Um, sure. in which everyone participated. Sure. Um then uh, I worked also as head of investments for a public REIT. So experiencing the requirements of of that then I was one of the founding uh, partners of Beacon Capital Partners, where I was chief investment officer. And so we were at the beginning of the whole wave of private equity in commercial real estate. I formed an investment platform with Prudential and an exclusive joint venture. So I mentioned that because what we bring to the consulting is all of that principal knowledge. So it's a little different than some consultants. And I always laugh. My, I have a client who I'll say, you know, well, what do you think of this business model? And he said, well, he says, I'll be honest with you. He says, I don't know anyone else who does what you do. So we have found we've been able to really service um, clients in that regard. And, you know, we're just delighted to be able to help them with anything in their portfolio.
0: Well, and the fact that you're coming from more of the principal side, I mean, you started, when when did you start Harvest? When when did
1: you start? 2004, so it's been 20 years.
0: Right, but before that, the fact that you came from the principal side, I think is really valuable because, I mean, you know, the use of the word consultants is always dangerous. I'm, I'm always amused when I look at some of the big name consulting firms, the Accenture's of the world. I mean, not to beat up on Accenture here, but when I think about the big name consulting firms, and they seem to be legendary for... They hire you know fresh faced kids out of out of B school and they say hey you're 25, go advise someone with you know 40 years of industry experience and that's lunacy. I mean you know I'm not saying you, you yeah shouldn't listen to no you know, and voices and young, but still
1: you, know? you hit the you hit the nail on the head because. Um, There are, you know, because we've been a general partner in the REIT, we understand what the motivations, what the strengths and weaknesses are of that structure. We know from being in private equity that it's a momentum business in which you need to invest and monetize your investments within four years or so to be able to provide those net returns. We know from being a developer. So... Right. It's been right. kind of good. In the range of what we offer, we can give investment recommendations. We can do asset management. We can do workouts, leverage yeah. strategy, yeah, JV so negotiations.
0: Talk, I was going to say, so service-wise, so, I mean, basically, the pension fund comes to you and says, I imagine, first off, these are the assets we already own. And then possibly these are assets we're looking at. And so you're providing asset management and acquisition support, if you will, right?
1: Yeah. And sometimes I just called, it. it's like, uh, we're a chief investment officer for hire. Got it. And it got covers it. a lot of ground for them. And then, you know, you get into what their goals and objectives are and then tailor whatever your solution is to what their needs are. And to their obligations. Cause
0: they got to, if they're a pension fund, they got to pay out X amount of dollars a year for, you know, pensions. So, no, it's interesting. So when you're i guess let's talk a little bit about the institutional mindset which is a phrase that gets thrown around quite a bit i mean you know are there i mean i imagine it's true but like like when an institution is thinking about where they want to deploy capital like are there times where you've come across investments or concepts which you feel objectively are a good idea but because of for lack of a better word mindset tradition culture history the pension fund just can't play in that space
1: you know, yeah. Are... You know, it. I'd like to demystify that because I work with Please. some GPs that, as you're highlighting, it's it's kind of a little bit of a mystery. So first, I'd say there's always great deals out there. You can make money in any part of the cycle. It's just connecting with the capital that fits you. So to your point about pension funds. They have a whole series of requirements um, and and a policy that really guides what they do. You know, a simple way to demystify it, if you want to know what a public pension fund is, just click on, find their investment policy. It'll tell you, we want to allocate to these sectors. We want to allocate to these geographies. We maybe don't want to have leverage. Or no, we'd really like to have leverage and have enhanced returns. That will demystify it but they have large some have very large blocks of capital to deploy like if you take like a calsters one of the largest pension funds in the united states
0: sure
1: they have to invest in large blocks so and they and so they're looking for efficiency they're looking for diversification and whatnot the corporate pension funds have a similar approach except it's obviously private and then you have just some institutional investors who have developed their own strategy and profile. And then you would work through understanding that by speaking to them. So it I understand particularly the GP's feeling, what is it that, that they look for? And, and they really are different and they're looking for track record too. They just don't wanna do that one deal with Josh Carr. Right. That's a home run as much as that'd be great. They really want sustained performance over a long and, and term, and they
0: want a pipeline. If we're going to go through the aggravation of we're going to build these documents and do this deal, then let's do five more. No, it, right. it's it's right. it's interesting. You know, on on the consulting side, I've been involved in helping some um, money manager types basically say, hey, I've got the local developer, I've got the pension funds over here, and I'm sitting in the middle and helping them allocate that money. And I've worked with those managers, and. You know yeah i mean it's it's the guidance and it's the pipeline and it's the saying you know let's get paperwork in place so we're not just doing one deal we're doing 10 deals um but and and i just wanted to address that i mean i had a conversation recently with someone who's a specialty lender in the farm industry uh they lend to farmers that's their whole thing and they do wheat and corn and all that sort of stuff and during conversation i said to him so you know what about cannabis cannabis is a real field and he's like, well, you know, our warehouse lines and our financial partners just philosophically won't do cannabis. And I'm like, OK, well, what about hemp? You know, because that's the the cannabis that doesn't get you high. And he said, well, same thing. They're terrified that we'll do hemp. And then accidentally, you know, cannabis will sneak its way in because plants are going to do what plants are going to do. So, um, you know, just no, you know, and that to me is sort of the speaks to that institutional mindset of we have a strategy, we have a plan, we have our risks, and there's only so much we can do. Now, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. So, you know, obviously in today's market, things have gotten, shall we say, interesting. Uh, interest rates have spiked. Uh, whether or not they keep going and they stabilize, you know, we'll see. Uh, how is that affecting the conversations you're having with some of your clients?
1: Well, I'd say a lot of capital is on the sidelines, right? If you are institutional capital, it is not worth the risk sometimes to enter the market while there's a falling knife. And you want to wait till it settles out a bit. You don't need to be the first mover in the space. But as we've seen through the cycles, it's the capital markets volatility that has the biggest impact on real estate. And, you know, that has, you know, in some ways, You know, in some ways, Josh, it's not a surprise at all. You know, if we look back over our shoulder, the last 10, 15 years of these low interest rates were an anomaly. I mean, I I don't think we had rates like that since the 1950s. So um, as one uh, colleague said to me that I find humorous about the investment market through that time, the pie eating contest is over. You could invest at a small spread to treasuries, and make money. Now, it's gonna require a lot of skill and the returns that we're seeing to be an appropriate spread to treasuries, whether it be 100 to 150 basis points for multifamily or 250 for office, um, you know, those are more going back to historic cap rates. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a tricky time. Office, particularly with the work from home has forever changed that sector yeah no,
0: and it's funny you mention that because you know i've done a number of interviews and um a the majority of the the calls i've done uh the person is in their house the majority you know and i'm sure if i had been doing a call-in show or something like this you know 20 30 years ago that would have been one in 50 and he or she would have apologized for well i'm sorry i had to take the call from home you know yeah. um America has changed, for lack of a better way of putting it. Culture has shifted. And at this point, I don't see any reason it's going to shift back.
1: Now, I, I think the the consensus of most folks in the industry is we'll go to a three to four day a week in the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe and Asia have gotten back to the office much quicker for very secular, you know, regional reasons. But this appears to be the new model uh, for office. And you know, there's it's going to be a, a period of time to recover. So on the positive side, um, if you can get some great investment in office through this cycle, there'll be very little competition, and there is almost zero financing for office buildings. So yes. a lot of sellers are going to offer you seller financing. So I keep an eye out for folks who enter it. They need to buy the best in class. There are some very sophisticated operators in that space. I think they'll do well, but that's that sector has a longer-term shakeout over a period of years.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, and that's that's great points about that. And you know, even things like retail that everyone thought was going to be the end of the world, um, you know, it seems to have bounced back. I mean, people still, you know, all those people working from home, they need to go out for lunch too. You know, like there's still there's still a need for retail. Maybe it's not where it used to be. But there's still a collective need for it. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess you know, for the next, if you were, if you were going to make a bet, so to speak, at what point some of these bigger institutions say, okay, now is the time to jump back in the pool. I guess what will be the things that make them jump back in will be interest rate stabilizing. Will be we get out of an election year. Does that even enter into the conversation? Um, and again, not to get into politics, but, you know, people often, whenever things are weird, they say, well, it's an election year. Like, do you think that really matters? Like, what what's, what, do you, what do you think it's going to take to get these guys to be like, okay, now's the time to, to deploy?
1: You know, I'd say that um, a few things on that point. First, things would have to stabilize on the interest rates. They've been bouncing up and down a bit, but I think there are many who believe we are still on the cusp of a recession and not the soft landing. So I think that would have to shake out quite a bit. Two, I think the cycle we're in now has a serious loan to value problem, way in excess of the 92 recession, way in excess. And so where is that going to shake out? There's going to be significant workouts. There's going to be significant loss of capital. So where those investment points are as you enter a cycle like this, you know uh, you you can't always you know really nail it. you know you want to make sure you're close to the bottom or at the bottom. It's hard to nail. But I think this recessionary overhang and feeling of, there's actually a great expression I heard mm. that described the status of commercial real estate and they described it as a time bomb with a fuse of indeterminate length. That's and nice I think putting yeah. I think that just answers your question. They, they just wanna see where this is gonna shake out. And so I think you're gonna get some early movers, some rescue capital, some opportunistic funds. They're gonna go in, they may say, hey, I'm not at the bottom, but as long as I'm in that quadrant near the bottom. A lot of folks are raising that rescue capital to provide liquidity. Or the range of workouts that are happening or are underway. Right. Um, so I think that capital, those that capital will jump in. The conservative institutional capital, I think, is going to be very measured until there are more green shoots out there, of stability and on the interest rates. A lot of them have negative leverage right now. You know, no one's talking about it, Josh. If you had an updated valuation based upon discount rates updated to reflect the higher interest rates and cap rates that would reflect the market it would be a different value than maybe you're carrying and might be negative leverage so right. a lot of these I assets
0: may actually be insolvent you might actually be so
1: yeah. there's a lot underneath that question that i i think there's a lot of risk in the capital stack that's not necessarily being understood you know, institutions do appraisals to understand values, whether they be accurate or somewhat accurate. And then they do audits at the properties to make sure the, you know, the cash flow is correct.
0: And they're usually doing that annually, right? Appraisals. Are
1: Both are done company. annually. Yeah. But what is the best practice in place to stress the capital stack? I've, I've asked that question of a number of institutions, so I don't think there is one. Now, folks hold assets in different ways. It could be a separate account could be direct could be a fund but understanding that's important because if the capital stack is now inverted you need to understand your risk you need to understand if you have a partner if have their incentives changed or their motivations changed and you need to be able to come together to work towards you know a solution if there is illiquidity so there's a lot going on that maybe just isn't as spoken about as uh, in as many forums, you know, maybe except for yours. No, and, and, and that's a, impactful.
0: And it's a fair point. I mean, you know, I think what you're seeing in certain circumstances now even is you may be an LP in a deal and your deal may be fine, but the GP is stressed because of the other deals that the GP has that have blown up. So now you say, well, the GP is downsizing, the GP has operational issues. The GP, In plain English, the GP is firing staff because they just can't make things work anymore. So your deal may be fine, but now what do you do if your GP is basically scrambling for operating capital and is just dysfunctional, you know? Yeah. So it's great, your deal's fine, but the GP yeah, so has if, got other issues.
1: So if you were to ask me, what do you think we're gonna be doing in the next you know, 12 months to three years? You know, our view right now is that we think an independent review of institutional owners of their properties, given the challenges, would be very worthwhile, regardless of how you hold it. You know, it could be a fund, could be a separate account, could be direct, because of what we just spoke about, that values may not be accurately recorded. And then, by the way, if you have leverage, you may have a lender who has debt yield requirements and are asking for a pay down of the loan, which means a funding by the institution, and that funding might not have associated with it the appropriate yield compensation for the underlying risk. New capital should get a higher preferred return because of the underlying value. So we think there's that to be understood. As you highlighted, the strength of your GPs or investment managers may be changing. You need to understand that, and you may find that depending on the timing of debt held on your assets, you may be approaching a workout because repayment is just not possible. And there needs to be a way to bring people together in a realistic way, just like you know the last three recessions. You know, my my team (laughs) we've been through three workout cycles. You need to have the experience to be able to bring them together, be realistic, because for a lender, taking it back, not only is there adverse tax consequences to GPs, but also they can lose 20% of the value just by taking an asset back. Right, because now it's a
0: workout, it's a distressed asset, that never sells what it should, et cetera. So, by the way, not, th- to, not to call back to a comment you made earlier, but when you talked about loan-to-values and where we are, vis-a-vis it's relationship to the 92 recession for those of you who are listening 92 was bad so i mean it's you know to say that it's worse than 92 that's not a uh, that's not a flippant statement because i think you know people who are playing in this industry in the 90s that was a challenging time a lot of a lot of big name entities that no one imagined would fail failed so here we are
1: you know um it's very similar because there's no there was no liquidity then, just as you've highlighted, Josh. There's none now. There was none then. Here's a here's kind of a great little, you know, way to just look at, you know, how do I know if I have an asset that could be in trouble? So if you borrowed on an office building in two thousand eighteen, right? And let's mm-hmm. say you did a sixty percent loan to value. Sure. The value of your asset is now probably worth the debt. Sure. So if you're being asked to fund capital calls, you might be just funding, preserving the debt, which I know for the um, from the lender perspective is great, but you just need to understand those assets, that's their value today. So um, it's great. The business is always changing. There's always uh, cycles. This is another cycle. Um, we're glad we offer a comprehensive services to uh, assist folks and I think There'll be a real shakeout as there is in any cycle um, sure. as we go through this.
0: And, you know, I mean, not to, you know, obviously your clients are confidential and what you tell them is confidential. And I get that. But I imagine a lot of your conversations now are of a, more of a flavor to say to people, look, um, we need to look strategically at what's really going on. And even though it may be an unpleasant conversation, because no one wants to be told your building has lost 40 percent of its value. I mean, no one would enjoy that conversation you know, sometimes you got to give people hard truths because, you know, you're the advisor. So,
1: yeah. And obviously it's all in how you work collegially and respectfully and bring people together. Um, And, you know, going through these cycles, you relearn uh, lessons that you learned before. I was thinking, Josh, you had asked me the other day about how would you compare two deals that maybe Turned out differently or, or one well and one not as well. And sure. I would say what I can share is I have uh, clients, two different investments. One in 2018 locked their debt. Mm-hmm. The other client um, did not. They floated. Mm-hmm. That singular investment standard that you know would be determined when you acquired it, making a world of difference. So one now is locked. At, you know, a four plus or minus rate, which would be incredible today. And the other, you know, with the exception of a rate cap, which is, you know, can be expensive, you're floating at a much higher rate. So, um, you know, there's a, That's there's it. a lot of conversations, but you know what, you, you know, you, you get a good team on it, you collaborate, you address it you know, you'll you'll move on to the next cycle.
0: You know, I, I had a, an investment as a GP where we had it under contract before COVID happened. And then COVID happened while well, it was under contract and the buyer backed out because mm. the buyer freaked out. And reasonably enough, buyer said this, now I'm now terrified, I am scared, I take my deposit back, I'm going home, you know. And we did eventually get the asset sold, but, you know, selling it post COVID, we got less money than we would have gotten pre-COVID. And my LP said, well, looking back, what should we have done differently? And I'm like, well, put it on the market a month earlier so COVID didn't happen. You know, I mean, that's honestly, all I could have said is, you know, hope the contract had gone hard and the guy couldn't have backed out because he couldn't get his. I mean, it was literally a difference of 15 days. Like the money would have been hard and then maybe we could have made him close because he wouldn't want to lose his deposit. But. 15
1: days. Josh, it sounds like to me you couldn't have done much different. You can't. Couldn't no one anything. can refine it. But, but and and it really, congratulations for you that you were able to complete the sale. Well, we got it
0: done eventually, but you know, later on for less money. But I mean that, and I, but honestly, that was my answer to him. Like, I we could have put it on the market 15 days earlier. I don't know. Like, I can't. I. It's like asking someone you got hit by lightning, what should you have done differently? Uh, not stand there. I, I don't know what to say. You know, yeah. that's that's the nature of our industry, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I, I always find it amusing that when people have unexpected positive surprises, they always say it's because they were smart and capable. And when they have unexpected negative surprises, it was bad luck. And I'm like, well, that's nah, not always true.
1: Like, you know, like, no, no, it isn't. And you know what? You hit on something that's just not in anyone's investment committee write ups or strategy, and that's timing. Timing as a singular item can, uh, you know, sure. make all the difference. And um, so hopefully, you know, folks who are watching this, whether they be GPs or LPs or lenders, they have good team members, good, you know, advisors, good, you know, thinking sure. so that they, they maximize that. But it's, you know, the be- as one, you know, expression goes, the bell doesn't ring at the top. So yeah. if you if you get close that's great so last question I
0: have for you and then i'm I'm good so let well, one question I've always had so let's say a GP hypothetically wants to work with pension funds right how does a GP find a pension fund and how do pension funds find GPS because you're working in advisory capacity I get that but like when a Calsters is sitting there or a Calpers or any large pension fund how do how do they find GPS how do GPS find them how does that okay. actually mechanically happen?
1: So there's a few ways. One, there could be an RFP at the pension fund issues. Okay. So that would be public. Maybe they're looking for fund managers, maybe new separate accounts. That's a great way to get in front of them. You get qualified. They do due diligence on you. They might say, okay, I like Josh Carr's group. I like their track record. You're in front of them now. Maybe you'll get selected, maybe not, but you're on the radar. That's a great way to get in front of them. The other way, of course, is to cold call. So whether you do it direct or with a consultant, I, I know there's uh, mixed uh, success in that because people get busy and maybe they're, they are they want to meet with everybody, but um, they have limits of time. Sure. So well, use your relationships. That. You know, it might be, gee, you know, Josh, you could recommend, you know, a GP to be in front of a pension fund or an institution, and they would take the meeting based on that. Uh, I'd say this, really listen. It's interesting to me with with some of the excitement of GPs, of their strategies, and the write-ups, really look at them carefully, because these... These pension funds get hundreds to thousands a day. Everyone says they have the strategy, the return. Whatever. So just think deeply about it. And when you go to the meeting with the pension fund, think about what they're worried about. Ask them what they're worried about. Just draw them out. And I think that will be so engaging. Whatever the you know the basis is for your visit, it will go very well. Keep at it. You know, you'll eventually start to add investors to your list and they will start to recommend you to others. But it's really hard work. And I admire the GPs who over a period of years build up that investor base.
0: Honestly, what you're describing to me sounds very similar to the conversations I think any GP has with equity sources. I think whether or not you're doing something at the institutional level or you're rounding up a bunch of small business owners who are going to go in on buying a small multifamily it it's it always comes back to the fundamentals. It's asking questions, it's communication, it's transparency. it's showing that you have an organization in place and hopefully having a strategy that works for them, you know, which yeah. is just a matter of talking to enough people.
1: right and their due diligence not only will be about how great of a deal maker you are and the track record you have, it's also going to be, you know the less exciting part, which is, do you have the organization behind you to administer this? Because setting up a platform is not inexpensive, and yeah. so that's part of the due diligence they will do, <clears throat> and and I'm sure the GPs are aware of that, but uh, it's equally important.
0: Uh, many many years ago, and last comment I'll make is, I worked in an I worked with an entity that was a, uh, a, a young REIT. They, just, they were going through the public offering process and they were prior to this privately owned and their accounting department were really just bookkeepers. And I don't mean to beat up on bookkeepers, but they were bookkeepers, not accountants. And they were doing everything on a cash basis. And the audit firm, which was Ernst & Young, said to them in a very nice way, if you're gonna go public, you need two years of accrual accounting. It needs to be on a gap basis. Like you need real accounting if you're going public. And right. the most painful thing honestly for them to go public was not the road show it was not the getting the strategy out there it was just having people rejigger and back up two years of accounting activity to show that the numbers were the numbers and i'm yeah. convinced to this day that the c-level team did not really fully understand why this was an issue and it's like well but you're going to be a public company like you you have to have a cruel accounting. You have to do gap. You're a big boy now. You gotta, you know, <laughs> you gotta be an adult. I don't know how else to put it. You know, um, and that was a that was an amusing early conversation. I I won't say who the REIT is because it's one of the biggest REITs in the world now. But it, it's amusing sometimes where we all start from. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway. Well, look, this has been a pleasure to talk and to go through uh, the the somewhat mysterious world of pension funds, because I think a lot of times people on the GP side just see this wall of money and don't really understand how it works. Um, Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Well, thank you, and my information is on my website if anyone wants to reach out with my email or phone number happy to chat happy to follow up on any questions folks may have. And thank you, Josh, for having me. It's been a great visit. Thanks again, Aaron. See you soon. Bye.